So there he lay like a graven king. The face to which every moment of glory referred was still. The eyes that were present at every birth and looked on with shining devotion were closed. The hands that would gather the world and hold it like a wounded child were still. This is no archetype, no belly of the beast, no death unto transformation. This is the original to which all archetypes refer. This is my dream, and when it died, this is the story it followed, the mystery at the center of reality. The apostles, we know, were devastated. Peter, I think, ran through the country, yelling, no, 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 louder and louder, no, 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 no. Matthew tried to journal, but the pen shook in his hand and tears blotted the page. He couldn't stop trembling. Mary of Nazareth was still as the dead, with John's arms around her and a sword through her heart. In fact, all of them were stooped over an annihilated dream. The devil, we know, was otherwise occupied just then, but the governors, Pilate and Caesar and Pharaoh and the Sanhedrin, rose from their work and looked out the window and wondered at the vertigo that suddenly shook their souls. But the angels, we can assume, had other preoccupations. Welcome back, friends, to part three of a series on the Paradise King. You are at the Wild at Heart podcast. I'm John Eldridge, and with me this week again, Alan Arnold in the studio, and Blaine Eldridge, who has written an absolutely breathtaking book um, that we've been talking about. So if you are just dropping into this and you're wondering why the reading, and you need to go back to part one on October 23rd and catch up with us. This week, part three, the conclusion of it for now, because we could go on for weeks and weeks um, for now. And um, before we get into the beauty of part three, which is Jesus, let's take our regular pause. We, We do this because the chaos, the madness, the pace, the swirl, we are all spun up by the time we reach this podcast. And in order to find God and let him nourish your soul, you need to let some of that spun up go. You got to just do your, do your best. Just let it go. Take a moment, release everyone and everything to Jesus. Jesus, I do give everyone and everything to you, and I ask you to meet me in this week. I I need to see you again. I need to see you as you are. Come, come Holy Spirit, and reveal Jesus to us. Amen. Blaine, I'm so excited to get into the third installment in our series and to hear more because now we're going to shift in our conversation and reading in The Paradise King, your new book, to Jesus. The book the book is designed to reveal Jesus, and we just want to let everybody know, 
hey, guess what? It's out early. We were saying the 15th because we thought that was going to be what we could do, uh, but it's out now. And that's exciting to announce to everyone. So excited for everybody. It's just breathtaking. The goal, the goal was beholding Jesus. The goal was, I, I just feel compelled to reintroduce Jesus to a postmodern world that can hardly see him if they see him at all. But you weren't, you weren't really happy with that assignment. Like this has got a story to it. Oh, it does. I didn't even want to do that. So here's what happened. I wanted to write Old Testament stories and talk about history. And I didn't quite know what the aversion was until I had one of those inflection point days reading John. I'm going along, you know, John has a lot of speeches in it. We haven't looked at that recently. And I'm in the middle of one of those and I'm slowing down, slowing down. All of a sudden I stop and I find myself saying out loud, you don't come off very well in your own story. And then all of a sudden, it was like all of the muted, alienated parts of my soul surged to the surface. And there is a kind of hardness, anger, and grief that is expressing itself as an aversion to Jesus. And what you need to know about the backstory is I was right in the middle of the loss of Craig McConnell and my friend Garrett and little Avon Rose and Patrick and Jeremy and the list kind of went on. The cost of that over time, a lot of unprocessed grief, a lot of disappointment, honestly, uh, was a pretty intense aversion to anger at with discomfort with Jesus. So we're at the table. And my other thing is I don't get you at all. The character that I am meeting in the Gospels, and by the way, by this time, I have actually like a great history with Jesus. You know, things are fine. I've seen him move powerfully. There is love too. And there's this whole unopened room of just, no, man, I am mad at you. Like life has been hard, man. And there was this kind of conspicuous silence but I felt like God was listening in the way that you can sometimes. And what I felt, the prompt I felt internally was, go look, go look. And I, re- I realized this is kind of the twin command of come and see. Maybe this is like the um, getting sent back a grade in a positive sense, like go look. And it felt like such a challenge in a positive sense, an invitational Hmm. um, Jesus saying, I'm okay that you don't like what you're seeing and that your story has a lot of pain that doesn't fit inside a frame. If you want to go look. And so it began a quest of, 
who are you in your own words? Mm. It's a hard thing to do, actually, because you open, I think what you realize is you open the box that is, I really want to understand Jesus. And you discover, even if they don't say it, people don't want to write about Jesus. A lot of scholarly books are so Jesus-adjacent. They're Jesus the symbol, Jesus the historical church movement, Jesus the hors d'oeuvres to the main course of Pauline theology. Uh, You really have to do some work to, to get to, and some of the really great voices of our time, like you know, on the Anglican side, Tom Wright, on the Catholic side, Bishop Barron, um, Stephen DeYoung, you're going to get a shout out to here too, because we, our Orthodox uh, room represented, say, listen, the last thing that you're likely to hear uh, honestly in Christianity is a proclamation of the way in Tom Wright's words that God, how God became king of the world. The gospel account is not how God saved sinners. It's how how God became king. So the quest and, began. Yeah, and that's why the Paradise King is such a it, it, it's such a worldview shift, gang. I mean, I I know a lot of this, a lot of it. I did not know, and and so you went back and you you dove into kings in the Old Testament, the story, history, and you've written a book that takes us through, Alan and I were talking in the hallway just then, you were comparing it to sort of like Bible project. Right, right. Like I've long been fascinated by how the Bible project takes these ideas and history and scripture. And it's like a diamond that you turn to see a different facet of, and you start to understand it in a more whole way. And that's what you're doing, Blaine, in this. So anybody that, if you've ever watched a Bible Project video or listened to the podcast of those guys who we love, like this book is a fresh, different, but similar version of that. I think the experience for people will be like, I never understood the bigger, larger, deeper story quite like this. Which gets us to Jesus. That's the whole point. And even through your own pain, and through your searching and writing, the book climaxes in the final chapters in the person of Jesus. And I want you to take us there. I want you to read, uh, again, gang, if you haven't been listening to one and two, uh, episode three here, you probably want to go back. But what's called the chorus from Messiah, and then I want you to read the widow of Nain story because it's so profoundly beautiful. So here's the chorus from the chapter on Josiah to the Incarnation. Silence. Silence came afterward. Silence that cut like a knife. Silence that hung in the air like words of doom. Silence that gripped the land and withered it like an enduring drought. They say hope deferred makes the heart sick, and it does, but this... The intertestamental period is something worse than hope deferred. It is hope sick and then dead and then buried, and the graves forgotten, and even the headstones worn away by time. God said nothing. 
when the exiles came back from Babylon and entered the old country like men and women who dreamed, he did not speak. When they rebuilt the temple, he did not come. They raised a wall around the city that was prophesied to have no walls and dedicated the altar, and still Yahweh did not return. Persia declined. Macedon rose. Alexander was a man of war, and he conquered Persia's provinces. Then he died, and his generals divided the place. They fashioned a fragmented empire, and those meant war. And so the rule of Judah often changed hands. A new Egyptian dynasty ruled a while. Afterward, the Seleucids came. They drove out Egypt and governed Jerusalem. One of these, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, shed pig blood on the altar of God and thus defiled the temple. That was more than the Jews could allow. Where was Yahweh? Judas the hammer arose. He drove out the Greeks and sanctified the place and purified the temple, and it was dedicated again, and no fire came. Oh, they noticed. God was not in Jerusalem. It was a public secret and a shame on Judah. What should the people do? How could Yahweh be implored to return? The priestly caste divided, the region's rivalries intensified, and then Rome came and trampled the people like a beast from an apocalypse. It murdered many. It brooked no arguments. Where was God? Where? In the shadow of Jerusalem, Jewish youths grew up with mothers who told them, one day God's anointed will come. By the time they were teens, they were sure he would not. Many grew sick of watching the desert, sick of reading the old scrolls. Time passed and God did not appear. And then, suddenly... Something occurred. It was like a lost father's letter arriving in the mail. It was like a legend walking out of an old story, speaking the old language and dressed in colors long since forgotten. He came. Chapter 6, Messiah, from Luke 7, 11 to 17. She did not hear when they called her name. She did not rise to see the crowd in the street. She did not notice the sun, or hear the voices calling her name. She sat, still as the dead, and held the hand of her son. It was hard and cold as ice in the shade. The widow, that is what they called her, the widow of Nain. It's possible for a tragedy to define a person's whole life, and that's how it was. Not even her neighbors remembered what she'd been called before. But her son remembered. Um, he had called her mother. And what a son he was. The boy had been popular, quick to laugh and hardworking. The other boys would have envied him, but he mocked himself and dodged compliments and made many friends. A leader, he was a boy to fill his mother's cup to the brim. Even the woman's meaner neighbors did not begrudge her that blessing. When he got sick, they prayed. When the sickness endured, they stopped. When he neared the point of death, 
they whispered about unconfessed sin. After all, God was just. Now they knocked on the door and came inside. Two of them, old women. Widow, they said. It's time. They tied her shoes. They put a cloth on her hair and wiped her cheeks. The people are waiting, they said, and pulled her up. Come, they clipped, and a few young men took the buyer outside. It was an austere day in Nain. Beauty, the town was called. It did not look it. Mount Moray had a bald, wintertime look. The fields were brown, flecked in blown straw, and the sheep were like maggots on the hills. The women squeezed the widow's arms. They pointed her toward the funeral party. It's a considerable crowd, they whispered. Be grateful. Of course, she did not look. She did not lift her feet. But when the buyer moved off, she drifted after it. Still, no word came from the widow. Her face was gray and alien. Then the tombs came into view. No, she suddenly gasped. She wailed, no! The tombs were like merciless eyes. She struggled. Her neighbors gripped her arms. Her husband was there, deep in that hill. She could remember the hopeless spring day when that strong man had been carried inside and left in the dark. She shouted the name of her son. The movement of the crowd was like the movement of time, speeding him away, and she cast about, panicking. Please, she begged, please. And then a shape appeared at the edge of her vision. She turned. A man was there, coming up from the sea. In a moment, the rest of the crowd would see him and falter, but in the beginning, only the widow regarded him, and her heartbeat slowed. His eyes, she could feel them. Even from a distance, she could tell. They were compassionate, and they were upon her. She turned. Those eyes, they were like the sound of surf and moonlit clouds and the laughter of children and the scent of wet earth and like time, especially time. Whole ages swept under that glance like blown dust, and even so, his eyes were soft as breath. She wiped the tears from her face, the procession stalled. The man walked up. He put a hand on her shoulder. Don't weep, he said. She looked in his face and saw that he knew. Yes, he knew. The life of a girl in that country. The wonder of the first snow on Moray. The ache of a first dead friend. He knew what it meant to see parents depart. He knew that the loss of a husband was a knife in the heart and that the loss of a son was a thing for which there are no words on earth or in heaven. He squeezed her arm. He walked to the buyer. He pulled back the shroud. There was the young man resting and yet in the arms of death. Young man, he said, and laid a hand on his chest. This is my command for you. The assembly was silent. The rabbi had touched a body, and that was strange. But now, he'd pronounce a blessing, surely. He'd offer a scripture. That is what a rabbi would do. Instead, he said, Arise. The widow jumped. 
The crowd gasped. The boy, however, opened his eyes. Behold, he said, your servant is listening. The prophet smiled. He laughed and his shoulders shook. He whispered something in the boy's ear. He said, you better comfort your mother. And so he did. The boy leapt off the byre and called her name. Um, he said and winked, and they fell weeping into each other's arms. And though the man was weeping too and laughing, it was fear that seized that crowd. They whispered and many panicked and wondered that so great a prophet had visited them. A prophet, yes, and so much more. Mm. Tears in my eyes. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Thank you for writing about Jesus so beautifully. It's just, we are living in a moment in time where beholding Jesus is the single most important thing that could happen to anyone right now. And where beholding Jesus is the single most difficult thing to happen right now for a whole host of reasons. You know, the postmodern collapse and the sweep of the Antichrist spirit and the falling away and, oh, just so much. But that you would start with someone's personal pain and find Jesus there, oh, that's just, it's really good. Yeah, I would just read the stories and cry as I began to see them. And then in writing them, begin to realize who it is that is presented in the gospel. Mm. And the widow of Nain, it references Elijah's do a number of other scenes, but the, the kindness of Jesus to show up to a ruined woman. I mean, if there goes the estate if you've lost a son and a husband. And then to give such kind words to her um, before raising her son, before mm. it, he really is beautiful. Mm. Um, and then it's not only that he can raise the dead with a word. It is the kindness and the quality of his character and his use of touch. And, it, you know, people will say he got it all right, which doesn't have a lot of emotion, though it's true. And you dive in and go, man, you just, when you roll into a scene, mm. it's so beautiful mm. to watch the righteous king do his thing. There is no one like him. Yeah. And Blaine, the last third of your book or this section here that we're in today is by far my favorite. Like any great story or song, it, it keeps building and building and culminates mm -hmm. yeah. with this. Um, I have a question for you. What what was the biggest shift for you from initially you saying, I didn't set out to write a book about Jesus to the Paradise King and here we are now in this, what was your biggest shift in discovery about Jesus? That's a really good question. It was slow. Mm. 
it was not a eureka moment of I found the right book and oh my gosh, I see you're Daniel's son of man or some other thing. It was the relational buildup over time of he's like this and he ties these things together and the story works in this way. And finally, there was such a momentum to this. I mean, open the Bible and it's a gravity well in a positive sense that pulls right towards Jesus. So it's unavoidable. But given enough time, contemplating and adding the layers in to Jesus where, I, you know, there, on, there are fortunately quite a few great books on Jesus. And in the course of those, one is, I mean, Kenneth Bailey has a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, where it's a very scholarly book, fortunately and unfortunately, but he would take a scene and then he would break it apart. And then he would say, you know, as someone who spent his entire career researching and teaching in the Near East, here's what I see. And so he's writing about the feast at Simon the Pharisee before the anointing of Jesus's feet. And he's writing how, okay, listen, this, if you work the story backwards to no kiss, no water, this is probably a scene where some of the ranking guys are trying to put a halter on Jesus of inviting him to a feast and then shaming him. So, because they treat him as less than a servant by not greeting him with a kiss. Well, he looks around, realizes this, and then it says, and then Jesus sits down. So he goes, you know, pushes Simon's pillow off the seat of the master of the house and takes that seat and then looks at Simon. And there's this stricken hush. Then with the anointing, the role of the matron of the kingdom is played by a prostitute. And you see the brilliance of his exchange mm. back and forth. And it was so gripping to see, man, your genius in this chess game, the way you engage very confrontationally, but the whole time with allure, uh, the way the dialogue is structured, Simon does not want to play the good student, but he knows that he has to because he's facing the rhetoric of the master teacher. And he's supposed to be the guy, man, who can beat this dude in a battle of wits. But to see Jesus ask a question... Let me tell you a story. Let's hear it. Um, yeah. Tells the story and then he asks a question and everyone sees the point and Simon has to name the point. It's just multiply that mm. over and over again across the stories. And at, once he emerges, there really is no going back that following Jesus is the spontaneous response to a real revelation of Christ. Mm. It, it really is. Okay. I want to ask you for one more reading. Um, we are finishing a three-part series this week with Jesus, but oh, friends, don't, don't let it end here. You've got to go get the Paradise King. Read it for yourself. Encounter Jesus again. Listen to it if you want. Do both. Um, because yeah, I mean the the you know last third of the book is Jesus and you know the cross, the resurrection, his return. Um, we can't we can't we can't do justice to that. But here's the two sections I've asked you to read. One is from sacrifice section, um, and the other following after. 
We haven't got space for everything in the Passion account. Not for the sweat like blood or the angel in Gethsemane or the young man running stark naked into the dark. Jesus prayed his disciples could not stay awake. A detachment of soldiers and temple guards and Pharisees appeared. Judas led them. He walked up to Jesus and kissed him with lips like cold clay, and so Jesus was betrayed. He was tried many times by Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod, though Pilate's was the interview we saw. He was at last handed over to die. The sufferings of Jesus are hard to depict, and the depictions we have are too often tacky and crude. In my experience, they foreground the blood and the violence and the agony. That's an interesting choice because those are the dimensions of Jesus' death all four gospel accounts avoid. Matthew doesn't even mention the moment Jesus died. The Roman soldiers just notice it happened. Truly, the crucifixion is difficult to engage. Too many treatments are both factual and misleading. And so I think I'll tell you a personal story. When my wife and I had been married two years, we had our first daughter. Blonde and outgoing and shining as dew, she remains miraculous. We were not sure we would be able to get pregnant at all. And so when, two years after that, we learned we were pregnant again, we could hardly believe it. Two kids. That is more than we could have hoped for. It is possible to feel like the world is stacked in your favor. It is possible to see life as a mountain of presence, every one of them marked with your name. That pregnancy went well. We made it to 20 weeks with nary a hiccup. But on the border of week 21, my wife woke up distressed. She knew, by a sense mothers possess, something was wrong. It's the baby, she told me, and she was right. Her tiny heart stopped, and that dream suddenly ended. That was a terrible time. It was also unreal somehow. We made plans. We prepared a tiny casket. When I was a boy, I had heart surgery, and I had saved my shirt from the hospital. I padded the casket with it, the only way I could think of to tell her she had my heart forever. The day we put that box in the ground was the worst day of my life. It's possible to feel your heart coming apart. And when I scooped the dirt, one handful at a time, into the little grave, I felt, I can hardly say, some things you cannot describe. I felt, among other things, terribly guilty for leaving her there. I felt like I had abandoned her. I found myself explaining to the air that I didn't have a choice, that there was no way to keep her. It did not help. I also felt that if I had to do it again, I would die. Then, several years later, it happened again. Another little girl, another interrupted pregnancy, another burial of a tiny box. Death is not a simple thing. Those days were dark. I felt like I was living on the edge of a black country, a darkness into which I could not reach for a hand I could not hold. It was always there, like a mirage. And then one day, I saw someone else. I was on the back steps of my house. I was sitting alone. Suddenly, I felt or detected, by a faculty stronger than sight, a man far off to my right. 
he also was facing the dark. He stood like a traveler on the edge of that land. He was not tall. His dark hair was pulled back from his face, and his face was serious, sad, and yet thoughtful, as though pondering unsearchable things. I knew who it was. I knew what I wanted him to do. I knew also that I could not ask because I would not know what I was asking for if I begged him to enter that country. But of course, that is the thing with Jesus. You do not have to. His face resolved and was stern. He shut his eyes and opened them again. And then the great king from out of the past stepped into the dark and was gone. That is one thing you must have in mind. Only God can save us from death, and yet the cost is that he must go there. There is no way except through the sea of death. And, and now I want you to jump ahead. It's just so beautiful, but you have to, you wrote this section and read it to us on Easter. And I, I want you to give us a little bit of the Arise passage. Yes. I love the resurrection. I'm so glad we get to take our people there. So there he lay like a graven king. The face to which every moment of glory referred was still. The eyes that were present at every birth and looked on with shining devotion were closed. The hands that would gather the world and hold it like a wounded child were still. This is no archetype, no belly of the beast, no death unto transformation. This is the original to which all archetypes refer. This is my dream, and when it died, this is the story it followed, the mystery at the center of reality. The apostles, we know, were devastated. Peter, I think, ran through the country, yelling, no, 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 louder and louder, no, 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 no. Matthew tried to journal, but the pen shook in his hand and tears blotted the page. He couldn't stop trembling. Mary of Nazareth was still as the dead, with John's arms around her and a sword through her heart. In fact, all of them were stooped over an annihilated dream. The devil, we know, was otherwise occupied just then, but the governors, Pilate and Caesar and Pharaoh and the Sanhedrin, rose from their work and looked out the window and wondered at the vertigo that suddenly shook their souls. But the angels, we can assume, had other preoccupations. If you could see the ramparts of heaven, you would, I think, see Michael with a tested sword and his attention on the tomb. His eyes were like unwelcome truths. His face was almost still, and yet his lips moved ever so slightly. He repeated a word. Perhaps Gabriel stood next to him. Perhaps Raphael and Abdiel came up and stood shoulder to shoulder, looking where he looked. And if that's so, then Moses and Elijah were certainly there. They knew what Michael was saying in his heavenly tongue. His hands were on the wall. His whole allegiance was pointed at the tomb like a terrible spear, and he said one word like a chant. What did he say? Lean in. He said, Arise. 
Gabriel mouthed it with him. His lips formed the word, arise. Elijah pounded his fist, arise. Moses held up his arms, arise, arise, arise. And all across the centuries, the saints cried out, arise. David pled, arise. The captives in Egypt, divided in their own nature, cried out, save us. Many soldiers in doomed last stands called out, do something. My mother-in-law cried in the car when she could not come in to hear her son's last words, God, 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 and the council of heaven and the elect archai and the mighty cherubim and all the choirs took up the cry, arise, 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 until there was a cacophony in heaven. God told Elijah, arise, and the men of Judah said to each other, arise, and the generals told David, arise, and the prophet said to Zion, arise, 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 because don't you see, the cross is the moment of covering, of marriage, of reconciliation. This is the moment of judgment. The devil could hear it. Baal could hear it. Belial could hear it. Azazel coiled in the desert and the gods of the nations right down to the present day could hear it. Feet on the stairs again, this time coming up and not one person only. The grave resounded with footsteps. You can bet the pagan gods knew exactly what was happening. They heard the heavenly chant repeated in a thousand languages across many hundreds of times that number of ages. Arise, 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 arise. There was a tremor like a birth pang of the age to come, and two angels shot away. They tossed the rock from the mouth of the tomb like the lid off a treasure. The earth itself groaned, arise, and then God himself stepped out of the earth. Roar, heavens, sing, you who have fallen asleep, shout, saints, but despair, gods of the world. Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is risen. The keys of death in Hades are in his hand, and he has judged the gods of the world. He is risen firstborn from among the dead and first fruit of the age to come. He has heard the groaning of slaves and he has moved. Hallelujah. Jesus the Messiah is risen. Right? Right. Yes. What do we say? Jesus. Thank you. Wow. Blaine, thank you for this book. It is a huge gift. It's a gift to the body of Christ. It is a gift to the unbelieving body. Oh, friends, you are going to love this book. And I bet you're already thinking right now about family, friends, your your pastor, your priest, the church that you go to, the folks that will absolutely love and need this book. And it's out. It's out right now. On Amazon only because it's a self-published project, but you can get the audio and listen to more of Blaine's readings. You can get the printed book itself and and uh, you can get it for the folks that you love. Yes. You've heard a lot of Blaine's readings here. You, you need to experience it all. Yeah. The whole, the whole flow of it. 
And then folks, tell everyone you know about these podcasts. They're free. You can, you can share that. You can ping somebody and say, you need to listen to this series. Like that's an easy ask of your world. That you can do with your folks, your friends, your pastor. Say, you, you need to listen to this three-part series. This, this is really, really going to just bless you deeply. So that's our prayer. And uh, congratulations on the Paradise King, Blaine. Thank it, you, Dad. It's a wonder. Thank you. Writing it was one of the most fun things I've done. And to be able to put it out there realizing that the invitation of Jesus has not changed. This Jesus is alive and well right now. And so the invitation, come back, come to your first love, get out of the world, run if you have to, come and behold Jesus, the one who loves you, and he can heal your humanity. And he will. Amen. Amen.